Please turn with me in your scriptures to the book of Genesis. We're picking up the life of Jacob uh, in Genesis chapter 28. Well, today we will begin in verse 10. But remember, we are picking up his, the life here. He has been uh, he has tricked his father into giving the blessing that should have belonged to Esau. And even though God had promised the blessing to Jacob, Jacob and Rebekah schemed and lied and tricked Isaac into giving it to Jacob. Um, and his brother Esau was quite upset and had threatened Jacob's life. So Isaac and Rebekah have sent Jacob away under the pretense of finding a wife, uh, but in reality to save his life. And so we pick up with Jacob in the midst of that journey on the way from Beersheba to Haran, where he will eventually find a wife too. Um, we'll talk about that later. But today we pick up an encounter that Jacob has with God on his trip. So please read with me in Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then jo Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And, the, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we meet you in your word because you have revealed to us who you are. As Paul says, we know about your glory, we know about your power, we know that we are without excuse just by viewing creation. And yet you reveal a very personal side of who you are as our Redeemer, as the one who has set out to save his people and to change a people for himself, to make them holy. We find that in your word. So Lord, help us to encounter you today. Help us to be changed by you today. And help us to find ways and to see areas in our life where we need to be holy as you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Have you ever thought about what would happen if you came face to face with the God of the universe? Have you ever thought about how you would react if you had an encounter with God? Many people have an expectation these days of how that would work out, of what would happen if I were to meet God, and most people outside of the church would say, I'd ask him a bunch of questions. Why is there evil in the world? Why do children get shot in schools? Why is life so hard if you're a good God? Many people within the church have a plan for what they will say to God as well when they meet Him face to face. Today, I want us to look at how God reveals Himself to Jacob, that face-to-face meeting with God that many people wish for so that they can just get the answers to their questions Jacob received. And so we're going to see how God revealed Himself to Jacob in this face-to-face meeting, and we're going to see how Jacob actually reacted to this encounter with God. First, how does God reveal Himself to Jacob, or what does God reveal about himself to Jacob. Now, Jacob is going to encounter God a couple times in his life. He's going to encounter uh, the angels of God uh, several times in his life as well. But this is the first time that we see Jacob encounter God and the angels. Uh, Jacob has left the comfort and protection of living in his parents' household, and he is on the run. As we mentioned, he has tricked Isaac into giving Esau's blessing to Jacob. He has upset his brother to the point that his brother desires to kill him. And Jacob is on the run. We're given a picture here of somebody who has left his house, almost kicked out of his household with nothing to his name, except the words that Isaac gave to him. He goes to this barren place, this wilderness, a place that is described as a certain place, a nameless place, which will be given the name of later, which is significant how that's structured. But he he enters this empty place, he enters it empty, and he enters it at a dangerous time during the day. Sunset, you didn't travel at night during these times because nighttime and darkness was a time of danger. Animals and bandits prowl during the night and, and Jacob is sleeping in the wilderness with a rock for his head with nothing to protect him at night. He is left behind a brother who seeks to murder him, and unbeknownst to him, he is heading to an uncle who is going to cheat him repeatedly. And it is in this place, in this wilderness of his life, in this geographical wilderness, that God chooses to come to Jacob in a vision. And what does Jacob see? Well, he sees a stairway. Some of your translations may, see, may say ladder. It's actually the same language that's used to describe the tower in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10. And in the ancient Near East, this stairway probably would have been part of a structure called a ziggurat. If you're writing notes, it's Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, ziggurat. It's a a pyramid-shaped structure that has a set of stairways, and at the top of it, there's a room that signifies the household of the gods. And the priest of this certain area, this certain culture, usually the Babylonian culture anymore, um, would ascend the steps uh, several times a year or maybe only once a year to to meet with the gods and to to gather there and to, to either offer sacrifices or to receive 
communication from the gods. And so it is probably this that Jacob sees. And going up and down this stairway are the angels of God. The picture here is either of angels offering worship and and their praise to the God who resides above the staircase, or angels going up to get their instructions and coming back down to earth to do the work of God, or it may be a combination of both. And at the top of this staircase, Jacob sees the Lord. God reveals Himself as the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac, and at the end of this of this vision, he will also be the God of Jacob. And then this God speaks. He speaks promises to Jacob. The first promises he gives are the corporate promises that have already been given to Abraham and Isaac. I'll give you a great number of descendants. I will give you the land where you you are residing, and I will make you a blessing to all of the nations. The nations will be blessed for you. And the second thing, the second set of promises we're actually going to look at in a few minutes, but these are promises that God gives to Jacob, specific to Jacob. But beyond the identification of God as the God of Abraham and Isaac, and beyond the identification of God as a promise-giving and ultimately promise-keeping God, if we dig a little deeper, we see something more about God in the areas of what I'm going to call transcendence, and eminence. The first thing that we see about God is that He is transcendent. What does it mean to be transcendent? For God to be transcendent. The Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms defines transcendent. If, if, if you need a dictionary of theological terms, this is a great one. It's about 100 or so pages long and it's called a Pocket Dictionary because it fits in your pocket. The Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms defines transcendence as the attribute of God that refers to being holy, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, and distinctly separate from creation, although always actively involved in and with it as well. The declaration that God is transcendent means that God is above the world and comes to creation from beyond it. Think of God revealing Himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. Moses says, who should I tell the Israelites is sending me? And God says, tell them that I am is sending you. Think of that phrase there, I am. The great philosopher Rene Descartes came up with this uh, uh, statement, I am, or I think, therefore I am. For humans, being, existence, is dependent upon something. I exist because I had parents. They exist because they had parents. If we trace it far enough back, even Adam and Eve's existence was dependent upon God creating them. God says, I am. I exist. Another way to say it is, is, please forgive the butchering of the English grammar here, but I be. I am. God depends upon God. Nothing. He exists solely within Himself. He exists. If we were not here, He would still be perfect and complete. He does not need us. Yet He created us. We're also going to look a little bit at God's eminence. And we'll, we'll, we'll flesh these out here a little bit in a, in a, a little bit more in a minute. 
But the pocket dictionary of theological terms defines God's eminence as the idea that God is present in, close to, and involved with creation. Christian theology teaches that God is constantly involved with creation without actually becoming exhausted by creation or ceasing to be divine in any way. Think back to Exodus 3.14 again. That name that God gives to Moses is God's personal covenant relational name. My first name is John. My middle name is Isaac, but each of you know me as what? Ike. That's my personal name. God is known as El Shaddai. He's known as Elohim. He has all these different names within Scripture. But his personal name that he gives to his people to say, cry out to me, is I I am or Jehovah or Yahweh. It's, It's all the same letters. God seeks to be in a relationship with people. And we see both his transcendence and his eminence in this encounter with Jacob. Where do we see his transcendence? We see his transcendence in the sovereignty. Jacob is fleeing for his life, heading into uncertain circumstances. According to what we have revealed here, the God of Abraham and Isaac is nowhere on Jacob's mind. What do we know about Jacob so far? He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a swindler. He is grasping at things that do not belong to him. He is not looking for God, and yet God initiates contact with the lying, cheating swindler. God doesn't wait for Jacob to seek him out. If he did, Jacob wouldn't. God reaches out, and as Jacob tries to grab at things that belong to other people, God grabs Jacob's attention. He does this in his own time. He does this in his own place. We also see his transcendence in God's majesty and rule over creation. This place is called the house of God. Jacob calls it the gate of heaven. This is a place where heaven and earth meet, very much like Eden. But on the stairway, where is God? Is he on the stairway? Is he he on the top of the stairway? No, he's above it all. If this stairway connects heaven up here and earth down here, God's above it all. With his majesty, with his rule, with his sovereignty, He governs everything separate and distinct from it, above it as you were. And finally, we see God's sovereignty in who He chooses to reveal Himself. What do we, we've mentioned this already. What do we know about Jacob? He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a thief. He is one who seeks the destruction of his brother, even from the womb. If you were going to save somebody, if you were going to reveal yourself somebody as the king, is Jacob who you would choose? No, because he deserves to be in prison. And kings don't reveal themselves to convicts, except for the king of the universe. Jacob did nothing to deserve God's intervention in his life, and yet God sovereignly chose God transcendently chose to reveal Himself. And that actually leads us into where we see God's eminence in this. Remember, not only is God transcendent and above and beyond everything, but He's also eminent. He's also part of it, intimately involved with His people. We see it first in the promise that He would be with Jacob. 
He comes to Jacob and gives him these promises that are based upon the promises given to Abraham and to Isaac, promises of blessing, promises of land, promises of descendants. And he says, I will be with you wherever you go. In the ancient Near East, gods were bound by the boundaries of the kingdoms that, of the people that worshipped them. So Jacob would have it in his mind if he were worshiping God at all. He would have it in his mind that, hey, as soon as I cross this boundary, I'm on my own. I, I, whatever God is with me is, is not with me once I cross the boundary of West Virginia here and head into Virginia. But God says, no, I am the transcendent God above everything and I will be with you wherever you go. It's interesting, as you read through Scripture, you, this this. This promise shows up so many times. It shows up again to Joshua. It's not the first time it shows up again, but it's the first time I can remember it. It shows up again with Joshua at the beginning of Joshua. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It shows up for David. You will be my son and I will be your God. And it shows up again at the end of Matthew. All power has been given to me. And I will never leave you and forsake you, is what Jesus says to his disciples. It's what he says to us. God is with his people. He's not exhausted by us. He's not worn out by us. We can't can't expend the limits of his power, his grace, and his strength. I am with you. Those times in life where it feels like God is just gone, this promise is still valid. I am with you. The psalmist in Psalm 130 says, I cry to you from the depths and I wait for you like a night watchman waits for the sun to come up so his shift can be over, so that relief can be found from guarding against the dangers of the night. God says, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am your God and I am with you. He not only promises to be with Jacob, he promises to protect Jacob. I will watch over you. The word translated watch over is the, same play, is the same phrase that the English Standard Version translates as keep uh, seven or eight times in Psalm 121. He, uh, the psalmist also uses this in Psalm 91, 11 through 15. Who knows the power of your anger for your wrath? Oops, wrong one. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in time of trouble. I will keep or I will watch over him and honor him. God promises protection for Jacob. He promises in promising him protection, he also promises that he will be faithful to the stipulations of the covenant, to the promises that he has given to Jacob, to Isaac, and to Abraham. And he promises to bring Jacob in this protection. He promises to bring Jacob safely back to to, to the promised land even though he will leave again and die in Egypt. And we also see God's eminence finally in the grace that he gives to Jacob. And we've touched on this a little bit. Who does God choose to be with? Who does God choose to keep? 
Who does God choose to protect and to return to the promised land? The grasper, the thief, the swindler, the cheat. That's who God approaches. That's who God promises to be with. And if we think about it, if we consider our own lives and dig deeply into our hearts, we'll see that we are like Jacob. We grasp at God's place. We seek to steal blessings from our brothers and sisters. We seek to have our own way at any cost. And yet God reaches down and meets us in our lives. In fact, Jesus takes this picture of this stairway and the angels descending up and down the stairway. And he tells the disciples, he says, the most glorious thing that you will see is the angels ascending and descending upon me. That stairway was a bridge between heaven and earth. That stairway was a means by which humans to approach God and God to approach unholy humans. And Jesus says, I am that stairway. I am the access to God. I am the way to reconciliation with God. So so God has revealed himself to be transcendent. God has revealed himself to be imminent. How does Jacob respond to this? Well, the first way Jacob responds is he was afraid. We have this idea of God as kind of this gray-haired, gray-beard grandfather who's asleep in his recliner just waiting for us to show up. And we kind of toddle in and we, we snuggle up in granddad's lap and we, we say, granddad, can I have a piece of chocolate? And granddad says, sure, here you are. Have a nice day. And he dozes back off. No. Jacob sees God and he's afraid. Why is Jacob afraid? Well, he has met the God who is glorious and holy and Jacob isn't. Jacob understands that I deserve to be destroyed here in the presence of the holy God because I am unholy. Now he takes this fear and it becomes what we know to be a saving fear because it leads to worship and not to running. Now had Jacob said, man, I am terrified and I am out of here. I want absolutely nothing to do with the holy God. I'm going to live my life the way I want to despite knowing who God is, we would know that this was not a saving fear. But Jacob turns to worship. In this fear, he renames the place and sets, up, it sets it up as a house of worship. Luz is a major Canaanite city that is described in the beginning of this as a certain place. Jacob just showed up at a random place and went to sleep. And yet, the way this is portrayed in Jacob's life is that that major metropolitan center of culture and commerce meant nothing compared to the house of God, compared to the gate of heaven. The things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glorious grace, or in the light of His glory and grace. He sets up this stone and he worships. The first reaction he has is fear and awe. The second reaction he has is worship. He sets up this stone of remembrance. He pours oil on it to consecrate it to God. He renames this place the house of God. And he worships God there. He remembers what God did for him. He'll return to Bethel 
when he comes back to the promised land. It takes him a little while. He has to be reminded that he promised God he'd return there, but he does eventually return. And it's a place for him to remember that he met God face to face. We don't have standing stones today. In the history of the Israelites, standing stones became gods to the Israelites and to the Canaanites. And so God said, no standing stones. But we have the sacraments today. Our place of remembrance of what God has done for us will be celebrated in the Lord's Supper and is celebrated in the baptism of believers and their children. Jacob has fear and awe. Jacob worship and then Jacob makes a vow. Now, uh, as we read in Sunday school today, we are commanded not to make vows, not to take oaths. Um, And so uh, the vow is an Old Testament institution. But it gives us a picture of something because this vow is a, sh- is a sign of a changed life. The grasper becomes the giver. The thief becomes the tither. In the Old Testament, they did look favorably upon vows as long as they were kept. If you vow to do something for God and you keep it, God is happy. Jacob's vow was a result of his trust in God's promises. The if that is there is a if of certainty. It's almost like the word since. So instead of saying, if God brings me back, he says, since God is going to bring me back. Instead of saying, if God keeps his promises, he's saying, since God will keep his promises. These are the things that I will do. I will remember. I will worship and I will give. I will tithe. Jacob does give his tithe. It's interesting, though, One of the commentators brought out that the tithe was voluntary long before it was commanded. And that's all I'm going to say about that today. So we've seen who God is. He is the transcendent God above all creation, but He's also the eminent God who desires to be in relationship with His people. We have seen that Jacob has responded to God's revelation with fear, with worship, and with a changed life. And what we see out of this is that whenever we encounter God, whether it's in the revelation of Scripture, whenever it's in the revelation of creation, or whether it's through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, it should lead to a life of worship. Once again, encounters with God should lead to a life of worship. Why are you here today? Many people come to church uh, these days and in this culture, sometimes even here, because they need that piece of chocolate from the granddad who's asleep in his recliner, and they just know the best place to get that is here on Sunday morning in church. They're here for what they can get out of church. We are here to encounter God. We are here to fear God. The God, a saving fear, not a fear of terror, but a a reverential, awesome fear. When we are confronted with the holiness, the righteousness, the transcendence of God, there should be a fear in our life that, that tugs, that pulls, that shows us where we are not holy, even though He calls us to be holy. We are here to worship, and worship is giving, it's not getting. If we leave this place encouraged, that is God's design, but that's not why we come. We come to worship Him. This is our place of remembrance. This is the place where we are reminded of what God has done for us. We are reminded of who God is. And when we encounter God, when we are called into His presence and we encounter Him, we worship. 
We give the best of our voice. We give the best of our prayers. We give the best of our attention so that we can know more about God and then be changed. When we encounter God in, in this place, we are to fear, we are to worship, and we are to be changed. The grasper becomes the giver. The thief becomes the tither. Why are we here? Are we just here to be fixed? Are we just here to be made felt good? Because if, if we are, I, I'm really disappointing many of you if that's why you're here to feel good. I've listened to my sermon, believe me. No, I'm just kidding. Why are we here? We're here to encounter God. And that is an awesome thing. And I mean awesome in kind of a terrible way. Because in order to encounter God and not be destroyed, we need the stairway. We need the cross. God has provided that for us in His Son. Jesus said, you will see angels in descending, ascending and descending upon me. You will see angels in descending upon the cross as Jesus spread out His arms and took the full fury of God's wrath against sin so that we might have grace. I truly hope that when you enter this place, you are here to encounter God. And I truly hope and pray that you do. And that as you do, you are led to fear of God. You are led to worship. And you are led to a changed life. Let us pray. God, you are in this place. And we are unworthy of standing here in this place before you. And yet you have provided the way for us. You, the great God, the great sovereign God, the great choosing God, the great God above and beyond all creation. Provided your son so that you might be the God who is with us. In fact, that was one of his names, Emmanuel, God with us. Remind us that God with us should lead us to fear you more in a way that leads to worship and a changed life. Help us to encounter you well. Amen.